We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 33 through 38, uh, and been going through the book of Luke. I invite you to open up and follow along. There's a Bible in front of you if you don't have your own, and you can uh, turn and find that in the New Testament. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and it's, what page number is it? Somebody's probably looking that up. Who gets the prize today? 1015, gold star. 1015 is where you'll find it if you are using that Bible. All right, this is Luke chapter 2, verses 20, or 33 through 38. And here's what it says. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's Simeon speaking to Mary and Joseph. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of God. Okay, so... Here we are now learning more about this person, Jesus, who's, who's born. And we've already taken a look in Luke chapter 2 at the way that he got here to Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph making their journey in response to the census. And then the shepherds receiving this word that the Messiah effectively had been born, the Christ child, the anointed one that they'd been looking forward to so many years. And angels, a host of angels, an army of angels come behind them saying glory to God in the highest and they go off to see what had happened and they uh, uh, interact with the message of, of Jesus, this baby who's born. They go and they tell everybody about what's happening and then we see Mary and Joseph last week in the text, uh, Reverend Woodard who was sharing the message, going to just do the stuff that any other person would do as they go to present their child and go through the, the ritual ceremonies that any other Jewish parent would go through, presenting him. And now we get to this part of the text. Now this series has a backdrop against it for us as we went through Hebrews chapter 11. And we looked at these people who lived by faith. I mean, that was the, the theme again and again in Hebrews chapter 11. And yet it was said, none of them received what had been promised. So the reason we're doing this in Luke chapter 2 at this Advent series is because now we have received what has been promised. The Christ who had arrived was the promised one. All those people have been anticipating and looking forward to. And here he is, and the question becomes, what's the response now that he has come? How do we receive that promised one. So this is part four of that entire series. And I want to approach this just a little bit differently. We'll be looking at, uh, at, the, at the verses, but uh, I want to just only be one PowerPoint slide for you, but it's really a series of kind of short quotes or statements or thoughts that come a little bit from what's before and then also through the text as well. And my hope is that one of these 
phrases might uh, resonate with you that one of them may become something that you said yeah that's that's what I needed to hear or something you can tuck away and even put as a, a philosophy shaping reality for your life that's a pretty lofty goal I, I know I, I know but perhaps that will happen so here's just a, a couple of thoughts that come from the previous section from this one as well as we go through this so the first one is this every step and arrival that's from Denise Levertov, a poem that was written, and actually a devotional that uh, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote, a 90-day devotional on, on that as well. And it just occurs to me as we're looking back at it, it's an appropriate thought as we get to this point in the text as well, especially with Hebrews 11 as a backdrop, because it's, you know, we live in a culture where we're sort of driven towards something. So we're, we're moving towards something. We want the big moment, the graduation, the job raise, the child, whatever the case may be, marriage, retirement. Um, and in the process of doing that, we tend to think that I will have arrived when I finally get there. But the concept behind this statement is that every step is itself an arrival. That there's purpose behind the steps that seem you know, not to have much purpose at all. And so this, this, this is kind of a process versus destination thing too. The process is the destination. I mean, going through life on a regular basis. And I say that not, not just pulling it out of the air, but the context here that there are so many thousands of years where people were waiting for this child to, be, uh, to arrive. Was their life purposeless? In the pro no. And that's what Hebrews 11 was saying. Every step along the way is an arrival of sorts. And of course there are big moments in life too, but when you forget about the fact that we're just going through this journey and every day, every moment is valuable in and of itself, you can lose even the sense of the big moments when you get there because they tend to be a little bit deflating, you know. Think of these people who win Super Bowls and, and they kind of end up saying, is this it? <laughs> I mean, uh, I've arrived, but that's all. And they've missed the beauty of all the things along the way. And the Bible reinforces this concept uh, again and again. Every step is in itself an arrival of sorts. And that's attached to this next, con next concept, which is every moment holy. Uh, that's actually... Uh, uh, a devotional as well that's been written somewhat recently and uh, that concept was reinforced at a, a concert that we got to go to just about a week and a half ago as well but this really is the idea that I, I thought Reverend Woodard was trying to unpack last week as Christ has brought like every other Jewish boy he goes through the same things and he was trying to suggest and, and said it very straightforward that it's the mundane things of life those mundane things are actually holy moments you're not just waiting for something again spectacular, but every step along the way, not just an arrival, but a holy moment, a sacred moment. We live in sacred space. This is a worldview issue, right? What's your view of the world? And we come here on Sunday morning, we think something special happens in corporate worship, and that's great. But for so many people, that is what worship is, and yet worship is all of life. Uh, when you go to work, you are imaging God in being creative and productive. That's holy. That's sacred. That's something spectacular. It also seems terribly boring. I mean, just commonplace and ordinary. But one of the beauties of the gospel message is God became flesh. He walked among us. He was a baby. Just 
an ordinary person. Not only 100% divine, yes, as we would discover, in that way, terribly unique, but also 100% human, just like you, just like me. And part of why that's happening is to say every single moment we live is holy. This, this book, you can look into it, Every Moment Holy has liturgies or prayers that you'll offer for very ordinary moments to remind you that it actually is something sacred. So they will have a, a liturgy for the common things of life, like waking up. And there's a liturgy for doing laundry. You know, just as you pray, doing, doing the laundry. And uh, according to the guy who was sharing about this too, there's a liturgy for changing diapers. I mean, there's a prayer for it. And apparently there's more than one because it happens a lot if you're in that phase of life. But the idea is these ordinary moments really become extraordinary. When you have, what difference does it make? What child is this? What difference does Christ make in your life? And every moment is holy. Now, I have, uh, you know, I've interacted with this this week, and I have to, this is, a, this is something I've had to let, latch on to and ask the question, how is this holy? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. How is this sacred in this moment? And you look at the baby in the manger, God becoming flesh. Every moment, holy. So there's something very common, very ordinary, very rhythmic to which we are invited in this it's this Christmas story. I mean, these, this is a Christmas text, right? The arrival of Christ. But at the same time, there's something quite unique as well in this baby who comes. This child is not just an ordinary child. So now we get into our text. And here's a quote for you. There is no neutrality. Uh, in verse 34, if, uh, if you're looking at that. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. You know, there are a lot of things that have been said about Jesus that are very encouraging and Mary would probably wonder and think that's fantastic. Now something that's a little difficult to hear. He's going to cause the rising, so some, some will rise, and falling of many. And he's actually going to be a sign that will be spoken against. So symbolically, Christ is a target for other people. Some are going to receive well, some are going to reject, and he himself is going to be spoken against. Not, not the kind of words you probably look forward to in your baby book. Um, hey, somebody came and shared today, Jesus, that, you know, you're going to cause the falling for many people, and you'll actually be a sign, and many people are going to speak against you. And that's, that's difficult. So this idea of neutrality is a concept that perhaps you've heard before, um, and it's with respect to, to, to moral issues for sure, but that you can't, there is no just middle road here. And especially with the person of Jesus. A lot of people think there is. That you can just say, ah, he was a good man. But his claims and the stories that, that we're reading here say you can't be neutral on this. You're either for or against. And he himself is going to be causing some to rise, some to fall. There's no, there's no neutrality when it comes to this issue, it's like there's a line in the sand that's been drawn in the person of Christ with his, birth, with his birth. And it's not just Simeon who would say that, but Jesus himself, as you know, if you know the storyline, he grows up, he begins teaching, he begins making claims like, I'm the son of God. And uh, I'm the one who's worthy of worship. And he proves that based on 
forgiving people their sins and healing and that kind of thing in the Gospel of Mark as he calls people to him in, in Mark chapter 8, kind of pivoting, a pivot point in that Gospel. He says, well, who, people, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say this guy, some people this guy. And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am to his disciples? And they make this declaration. Peter does. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been awaiting for many, many years. And Jesus doesn't leave us the option of just being neutral. And Simeon says that's because you can't be with him. When somebody says something like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's absolutely no other way to get to God except through me, that's slightly divisive. And it's very hard to embrace. It's an extremely exclusive claim. And so there is, Jesus doesn't leave the option for, for neutrality here. And, and Simeon's saying, there's going to be, he's going to cause some problems because of his claims, because of his person. Who do you say that I am? And then there's this hint next too in verse 35, as he's a sign spoken against that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So that's pretty interesting, right? In other words, Christ reveals our hearts. And that's the next pithy quote, if you will. Here too in verse 35. He is going to demonstrate what's really happening on the inside because of the claims, because of his person and his work. And this is what Jesus does a lot of too. It's easy to hide behind a facade, you know, an image of who you are. But Christ doesn't, he knows your heart. He fashioned you. He understands you. He knows every thought. That's the claims that he makes. And because of that, he reveals your heart to yourself. This is what Jesus does, even as he looks at the people of Israel and says, look, you've been walking with God for a long time. But a lot of you just going through the motions, and God really knows your heart. So when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he starts saying, you've heard it said this, but that doesn't always get down to the heart issue behind it. So he he says some radical things because he's interested in what's happening on the inside. That was always the case, we see, but it was easy with these rules just to make it something external. And Jesus makes it internal. So he challenges us. That's why there's no neutrality because he reveals who we really are. You can be one thing to everybody else, but not to Jesus. He knows who you really are. In a sense, that can be incredibly terrifying that somebody really knows who you are. It's a good thing that we have somebody who's actually kind and generous in response to that and says, hey, come to me. We sang about this. Lay down your, your pride. Come, come to the altar. Jesus is for you, for sinners. If you don't recognize that, if you want to hide behind it, that's fine, but it will be revealed. Because I know your heart. So he's a good savior, but he's an all-knowing one as well. This week, in our, our triad, we were having a discussion about accountability. And I was just trying to ask these uh, men that we're meeting with, you know, some of you are, are familiar in, in Christian circles, maybe you get some accountability, and we're trying to say, what are, what are some good questions to ask each other that may challenge us to live a life well, live life with, it, with integrity? And, you know, there's kind of some standard questions, and you can look it up, like good accountability questions, and get a list and everything, and... And that's fine, but we're trying to di dialogue with why are we even doing this and what's really, really helpful. 
Uh, one of the books that we just recently read encouraged us to develop what's called a rule of life. Uh, this is kind of an ancient church practice, but the idea is what do you need to do intentionally so that you can have a connection with God? That you can be rightly related to him, not just you know, theoretically, but practically speaking in relationship. What are the things, the key things that you need to do to be intentional about keeping God at the center of everything? Because you know that doesn't just happen naturally like anything else. You have to plan for it. So, and there are some, kind of looking back at the church, there are some things that you do you know, to cultivate that. And dialoguing with accountability and the rule of life, what we came up with, at least in that group, just four, four of us, was saying, you know, we, we had developed our rule of life. We'd written it down. And we were saying, let's hold each other accountable to are we actually pursuing that? Sometimes when you just have a list of accountability questions, okay, first off, you can totally lie through your teeth, even if one of the questions is, did you just lie to me? Because usually you're like, no, which it's easy to keep lying right? But the issue isn't just like, are you doing the right things, but what kind of person are you becoming? And that's very hard. See, rules are very easy to follow. Did you? Don't. This kind of idea of what, what kind of person are you becoming that will then change you from the inside so that these rules are something you want to follow and just do. And I say that because we're, try, we're, we're grappling with that. Uh, still, a lot of us walking with the Lord, like, what kind of a person do I want to become? How do I put myself in a place to become the kind of person who would do that kind of thing instead of just saying, do this, don't, don't do that? And for us, that, that's where accountability was kind of coming from. But this is the idea here that Christ is, is molding and making us a certain kind of person. What kind of person am I to be? And that's where we're trying to dialogue with that. And that gets to Christ revealing our hearts as well. Now, verse 35, here's a quote for you. Christmas has a hard side. It's not all, it's not all just, you know, happy. There's some really hard things to Christmas. And Simeon says to mom, Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too, in verse 35. In other words, your son is born to die. I mean, you, this is going to be the most torturous experience, like a sword piercing the deepest part of who you are. In the birth of your child, this is what she's being told. You're going to suffer greatly. There's all kinds of pain in the future for you. Emotional, mental, spiritual turmoil is your Christmas gift for this morning. You know, the angel is saying, there is a hard side to Christmas. And that's simply a part of the Christmas message it might even come with some of what Simeon had already said, right? Previously, there are a lot of people who he's a light and a revelation to the Gentiles. And so he's bringing people to himself. But when you step into that reality, since there's no neutrality, then you're going to be putting yourself on a certain side of that line in the sand and you can suffer a certain amount of agony. Certainly Mary as a mother will do it. But anybody who says, I'm follower of Christ could experience that as well. And we know it's more profound for some than others. I mean, you know, we have a, a pretty good situation here for sure. I, I, I'm looking forward to Christmas Eve. I love Christmas Eve, uh, the Christmas Eve service. Uh, our kids exchange gifts with each other. And there's just all the anticipation of Christmas morning and what happens on that day. And, and the wonderful thing for me is I, I, bear, I have none of the stress because my wife does all the work. So Christmas is just wonderful 
for me and you know, my, my poor wife, and I think so many others too, bear the burden of all. Uh, some of you are probably better men than I and do a lot of the work. When I try, I usually just get in the way. So it's, it's like uh, Christmas is wonderful at this point. You know, a lot's behind us. We have a couple of birthdays in December, Christmas for the nations, and everything is just so, so front-loaded. But then now we finally get to this point where we can see and enter into the joy of it and have that to look forward to, you know, Christmas Eve going home and doing whatever the case may be. Hopefully the same is the case for you, but not everybody gets to experience that. I mean, there are people who, for Christmas, are, are separated from their families and experiencing, you know, not the wonder uh, and the beauty and the way that we are of the memories and, and the traditions. If you were at Christmas for the Nations, you saw Ryan Jang sharing a little bit about one of his memories of Christmas as somebody who grew up in China and then moved to the United States and just occurring to him one time uh, the luxury really of being able to be with family and, and to worship God in public space and wake up and, and, and enjoy your Christmas traditions for him who has that background because he knows there are people who because of their faith are not going to experience that on Christmas morning. It's a very live issue as well. In fact, he wrote a little article, um, and there you can track more of it too, about something that happened just a, a couple of weeks ago in, in China, a church that he's connected to. 100 of its members were detained by authorities. 80 are still unknown in terms of where they are, uh, simply because they're worshiping Christ. Is there, is there only, really, it's their only offense. And that summary uh, that Ryan wrote of about Pastor Wang Yi, an early reign covenant church uh, which they were arrested on December 9 still over 80 still in detention and I'm thinking that you know there's a profound sense of loss or grief and separation at Christmas time for them too and that may be the case for us too in a little different sort of way as I was praying you know this is a hard time of the year for people when when the beautiful picture I just painted of like ooh, family all together isn't true for you because some, you've lost somebody, maybe, maybe, maybe to death. This past year or in recent years or years, and it's always remind, you remember. More profoundly, they're gone. Or a broken relationship, just emotionally. Distance, you know, a spouse, children, parents, not here. So when everybody else is gathering around and having a great time, you're remembering how awful things are. And what I want to suggest to you um, in this text, too, is that that's still a part of Christmas. You know, Christmas has a hard side to it. And don't, don't deny that. Recognize it. And realize that even in the Christmas story here, Jesus' mother is said, your soul is going to be pierced. Like, this is the Christmas narrative that we're reading as well. Christmas has a hard side to it. So, I, I mean, part of that is just recognizing it, but realizing again that Christ entered into the mess to redeem that, to say, I, I got this, I'm here. You know, I understand what you're going through in the midst of loss or grief. Well, then we turn a, a little bit here from Simeon now to Anna, who's called a prophetess in verse, verse 36. And, uh, and she, if, if you uh, read there too, this daughter of the tribe of Asher, what do we know about her? Well, she was super old. That's what it says. She was very old. 
And it goes on to say she'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, was a widow until she was 84. So she was, she, she was just ancient. Her bones were creaking. And does that mean that her life is useless now? I mean, that's, I, I think, again, culturally speaking, we tend, we tend to think, at least in the Western culture, that old people just get in the way and we want to get rid of them. <laughs> like... Um, and we miss a lot of the wisdom and the beauty and the value of life as it's been collected over, over the years as well. It, it's funny, when we first started meeting uh, on Saturday nights, uh, Redeemer, I think even before we had a church name, just as, as a small group, and you, you miss those times, there's some intimacy to being in a home, and we always had a meal. And in American culture, who goes first at a meal? The kids, right. So that's, that's, at least in my experience, get these kids out of the way. <laughs> like, let's get them fed, right, and, and just doing their thing, and then we can go through a little bit later. Um, but it was interesting because we had then uh, a Chinese presence with us. Well, in the Chinese culture, who goes first? The, the oldest person in the room, which is great. So, we're, you know, that's what happens when you're dialoguing with these you know, different, different cultures. But it kind of shows you, too, even the value I mean, maybe subtly, too. In America, typically, we really think our kids are great. And we defer to them a lot. <laughs> and we think that the world revolves around them, just like they think, <laughs> as well, a lot of times, perhaps. In the Chinese culture, there's, something, there's a value to the elderly as well. And so when we see Anna, this older lady, let me suggest, don't waste your life. Now, that, that's the title of a book that John Piper wrote. And he's kind of a, a shock artist sometimes in these things as well. But the concept here is that, you know, you've got something valuable. I don't care where you are in life. And I don't mean to, to belittle the value of kids because by all means, Jesus said, bless them, come to me. You need faith like a child. And so that's great. In our culture, though, we tend to devalue people as they get older. And I think that's a real mistake. Also, also, the value that you have as somebody who is aging, because each one of us is a week older than we were last Sunday, is, you know, as you age, you have something to give and to offer, and it shifts. It becomes more unique and dynamic. That means that there's more people in this world who are younger than you as well. You have something to give to more people now as you invest along the way. What is Anna doing in her older days? She's in the temple worshiping night and day. She's just spending her life in the worship and the fasting, the contemplation of who God is. And then she's going to share with others, too, about what's happening. So don't waste your life. She's making the most of it. And another kind of corollary to that might be embrace your place and your time. You know, back in verse 25, we met Simeon. He's an older guy as well. And there's some very straightforward facts about this guy. What does it say there? Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. And then we meet Anna. Again, now in verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. Here's some facts about who these people were. They lived in a certain place, and they lived at a certain time. In the Greek, tapos, topography, and kairos. And some of you have heard that spoken before. A moment, a time. And they embraced it. I mean, we, none of us lives in Jerusalem. We live in Mason. And for some of you, that may be like, this is really exciting. For some of you might think, what am I doing here in Mason? Well, God has something for you to do here. This is, you're here, not by mistake. So embrace your place. 
Even if you don't want to be here, God does mysteriously. And embrace the time where you're growing. You think, oh, I wish I had lived during this era. Well, you don't. You live now. And God has something for you to do now in this place. Embrace that. It appears that they did. They just took where they were and they put themselves into God's plan and they went with it. Some of you maybe watch It's a Wonderful Life. If you've seen that movie uh, before. But, you know, the, the basic idea is, you know, there's this guy in his whole life. He just wants to get out of this little town where he is. He can't stand it. And he never gets to leave. And he ends up, you know, he's a wife and he's got kids. And he's, he's making a, a difference, but he just can't see it. And he's brought to the brink of, you know, of committing suicide, jumping off a bridge. And an angel comes. Not quite the angels that you see in the Bible uh, who elicit terror. Uh, a goofy guy who, who comes and, and, and then begins to show him what the town would be like if he weren't there. All these small differences that he, he thinks mean nothing at all. And, of course, it's a very different picture of what the city would be like. It's got a different name, and it's, it's just a completely... All, all the people he'd invested in are sort of on the outs now, and it's, it's not always a, a pretty picture. And, and then when he comes back home, and he gets to the same old house. You know, he's got a little banister, and a little thing comes off. And he'd gotten really mad before he got this glimpse of what life would have been like. And when he comes back, he opens it up and he's like, I love this thing. Nothing circumstantially had changed. What had changed? In some ways, it seems like he was finally able to embrace his place and his time. And say, God's right here doing something great. Only thing that changed was his perspective. And I think that's something that we, you know, miss a lot. In, in the craziness of life, we just... You're just missing those things along the way. You know, when uh, Pastor Woodard was preaching last week, he was talking about driving down the street and becoming familiar with it. You see everything in the beginning, and then after a while, you don't even notice it. Have any of you had this experience? Please tell me you had. Where you end up somewhere, you drive somewhere, and you have no memory of how you got there. Like, did I see any traffic around? I, I can't remember. Has that happened to anybody? Is there anybody who that hasn't, besides people who haven't drive? Isn't that the scariest moment in your life? I'm like, how did I get here? And here I am. And so the Christmas season, the Advent, and all these things happening are inviting us to slow down and embrace where we are and, 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 and value the stuff that God is doing. The final point here in verse 38, Christ still redeems. Because Anna, this woman who's declaring God's word in the temple, comes up to them in verse 38. At that very moment, she gives thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So here he is. The, the promised one has come. He's bringing redemption. Now the thing about redemption, a marketplace term, meaning somebody's bought something for you, is that they were looking for a Messiah who would come, as you probably know, and bring about redemption in a very different way. You know, he's going to go MMA style on the Roman government. He's going to overthrow everything. And the redemption he brought was bigger than just that. Because you might change a regime for a moment, but he was bringing about a completely new kingdom that would change hearts. And that's much harder to do. And people didn't quite see that. So this redemption was kind of unexpected. In a way it was predicted, but they didn't see it. So God's doing something sort of unexpected. On our prayer card, if you've been praying, 
it says one of the things we've challenged you to pray for this past year is for God to do something unexpected at Redeemer. And here's the thing about unexpected things. You don't expect them <laughs> when they happen. I think he's been doing that, but not in the way... My, I had some expectations for what unexpected might look like. <laughs> it's not looked that way at all. And yet God's still doing it, right? I mean, he's, I'm embracing place and time and realizing that God's still in the business of, of, of purchasing things, people, and, and redeeming. It's not just a one-time thing. It's like God is continuing to renew me and change me and remind me of where I have looked for redemption the Messiah in the wrong way, in idols that I didn't even know I had, things that I'm worshiping instead of God. Part of redemption is you're worshiping the wrong thing. But I paid the price for that. Now come and worship what's right. In this Christmas season, we're being called to remember even that unexpected redemption. The arrival of Christ signals the next step in God's plan. And the message of Christmas is that he's still doing that. And the invitation is to enter into it. Corporately, but also individually. You know, what is Christ doing? Um, next, next week, and we have Stories of Grace, a perfect time to look back on the year. And I invite you to think about, you know, what's, what are the ways that God has been you know, unexpectedly at work in your life, signaling that he's still the Redeemer, the one who is interacting with us in very personal ways, but even in corporate as well. Well, Pastor... Um, Yi, who has been arrested, uh, he and his wife both as well, he wrote a letter. And he said, I want you to publish this letter. If I've been detained for more than 48 hours, I want you to publish this letter. And it's a, it's a longer letter. You can look it up. Early Rain Church is what you could find. But I'm going to read just a little snippet of that to uh, underscore this, this final point uh, as, as you go on here too. And I've got this up here. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil uh, proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short and God fervently commands to the church to lead and call any man to repentance who's willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the earthly kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. And he's in, he's in jail now. He just said, you need to, he, I want to get this word out. And there's a, I commend it to you. He, he makes uh, some uh, dialogues about how do we interact with the government when it's doing what we consider to be evil. And um, it's an interesting letter. And it's a fresh one too. But what I hear him saying is that there's a line that's drawn in the sand in this Christ child. And I've walked across it. I've paid the price. But that's why I came. Because I'm not just living for this earthly kingdom. Though yes we embrace our time and place. But there's a heavenly one as well. And that's the kingdom that I want other people to know about. And that's really the message of Christmas as well. Well thankfully it's not just spiritual. We have a tangible reality to this message. And that's part of why Christ gave us this sacrament, the night that he died, you know, he was born to die, and he knew that was coming, and he said, I'm going to shepherd my, the hearts of people following me because they're going to struggle with this. 
So it was on the night that he was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for forgiveness of sins. If you're somebody who's embraced Christ and said, yes, uh, I'm a follower. I, I have faith even if it's weak, but I trust and I turn to God and my only hope is in him. Then this table is for you to enjoy. Um, our tradition, as you probably know, I think, is to pass out first the bread and then follow with what we have here as juice and then to take it all together to signify our unity. So I invite you just to do some soul searching this morning and to remember that you're forgiven, to embrace the good news of the message of Christmas. So first, the body.